You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Joyce Vance, Jill Weinbanks, Kimberly Atkins Store, and me, Barb McQuaid. Today we'll be discussing the criminal charges in the death of Brianna Taylor, the abortion wars in Idaho, and Alex Jones's comeuppance in the Sandy Hook trial. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. But first, before we get started, I want to ask you guys a question. I was traveling in Seattle last week with my uh, son. And we went to a Seattle Mariners game, and he had read in advance that among other things they serve at the Seattle Mariners games are fried grasshoppers. And he wanted to eat some and try them, which I thought was crazy, but he got some, and he got them in a little cup, and he ate them, and, you know, asked how they were, and he said, no, they're okay, they're nothing good nor bad. And I just couldn't understand why he wanted to eat them, but this is a delicacy sold at Seattle Mariners games, so it got me thinking, what's the most unusual thing that any of you has ever eaten? So I'll go first. As you all know, I travel to weird and exotic places. So I've had a lot of really weird and exotic things. And I had a, I have a lot of foods that I could mention, but your story about the grasshoppers makes me answer with something that happened on my honeymoon. We were, um, this is 1980, in China, when China was just opening up, and we were one of the only um, non-Chinese in the hotel, and we could only eat in a special dining room for anybody who wasn't Chinese, and nobody spoke English. They served us this thing that looked like a giant grasshopper covered in orange sauce, and my husband and I both looked at it and went, uh, and then we thought, well, okay, we were, you know, we got to try it. And we kept asking the waitress what it was, and she kept going, palm, palm. And we couldn't figure out what it was. We decided to taste it, and it turned out to be a prawn. And then we ended up fighting over it, but we thought we were eating a grasshopper when we started. So it was, it was delicious and terrific. Um, but that definitely isn't the strangest thing I've eaten. I've eaten horse in... Uzbekistan. I've eaten snake bile in China. I've had marmite, which is maybe not strange, but have has anybody tasted marmite? It's a very popular dish in Australia, New Guinea. I only know about Vegemite uh, from that song, the, the yeah, song, Vegemite sandwich. It's sort of <laughs> like that. It's sort of like that, but it really smells awful. It's definitely, or there's um, a durian fruit, which if you can get it in your mouth is amazing because the smell is so awful but it's considered a delicacy in many countries. We ate durian in Costa Rica and thought it was wonderful, but that smell was like you'd Ugh. opened a trash can. Well, what's the strangest thing you've eaten, Joyce? 
So I think Kim and I may have one in common, but I actually tried the marinated shark in Iceland that they um, make it essentially by burying it in the ground for like four months and then they pull it out and it really smells like it. But I'm always <laughs> devoted to trying things in, um, you know, I just always want to try the local thing. So I got past the smell and I'm going to say that I thought the taste was okay. I didn't mind huh. eating it, but the smell was just really tough. For me, the very worst thing of all time, like Jill was on my honeymoon, it was haggis in Scotland, which my oh. husband <laughs> ate and which I would not touch. Mm -hmm. <laughs> How about you, Kim? It's really interesting. When I was in Iceland, we had a really great, uh, we had a couple of really great tour guides, one of whom said to us, uh, because he really liked us, it's like, look, everybody's going to try to get you to eat that buried fermented shark. Don't like yeah. Iceland, even people in Iceland don't eat that. Like they, we, we basically laugh at the tourists who do. So I escaped that. But in Iceland, I did eat um, a lot of other things, including, and I'm very sorry for anyone who likes these very cute animals, but I did have foal. I did. And I did have puffin. The Ooh, did the little bird, the pretty little puffin. bird with the pretty little feathers? Yeah, oh. I know. Poor I couldn't puffin. eat puffin or horse. It was just a bridge too far for me. And I'm usually adventurous. Yeah, I did both. I'm so sorry. And um, <laughs> also, my favorite story about weird game um, in, a, in an exotic place. I was actually in Killington, Vermont. This is back when I was in law school on a ski trip with some friends. And we stopped at this restaurant called Panache. I don't think that it exists anymore. And it was very strange. But it allegedly specialized in wild game. And things on the menu uh, were wild indeed, including my boyfriend at the time ordered hippo pot pie. Whoa. Um, and I just thought, are, do hip... Do hippos run wild in Vermont? I don't think I've ever seen that. I had what purported to be um, camel steak. Um, again, we're in Vermont. So I, I, I still have questions about whether all of this was chicken, but that's what we were told. <laughs> what about you, Barb? Um, you know, probably nothing, nothing like what you guys are like. I'm horrified by these stories. <laughs> nothing like that. It's hideous. Um, I think I've had frog legs. I remember once being in China and being served a fish with the head still on, you know, like the whole body thing. And I think I don't think I ate it. I think I ate some sides. I remember being in England once and being served kidney pie and asking the waiter, yeah. so so what is in kidney pie anyway? You know, expecting and hoping he'd say kidney beans. And he, and he said, uh, well, you know, kidneys. <laughs> so that was not so great. Um but, you know, one of the weirdest, Jill, I was in this old Chicago restaurant. You probably know it's like Berghoff or something like that. Berghoff, yes, Berghoff's. 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 Like, like, just like old Right next dark to the federal wood. court. Yes. yes. Like old dark wood. Like, you know, men drink three martinis there for lunch, right? It's like a lawyer's hangout kind of a place. I went there on a business lunch with a business colleague. And when we walked in the door, there was a sign that said, today's special braised oxtails. And we both kind of laughed, like who would want that for lunch? You know, that's such a heavy braised, what even is that braised oxtail? And we kind of laughed and he said, you got to have the braised oxtails. I mean, if you're coming in here and that's the special, you got to have it, right? And we kind of laughed about it. And so the, 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 the waiter came over and asked our order. And I said, well, I'm going to have the braised oxtails. And then turned to my lunch companion and said, and what will you have? And he said, I'll have the tuna sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> so I was too embarrassed. <laughs> to change my order. So I ate the braised oxtails and my lunch partner had. And how was sandwich. it? 
How was weird. it? It was all right. I mean, I suppose as far yeah. as those things go, it's fine, but you know, a little. The one thing I chickened odd. out on was chicken feet. And I, I, the people I was with were eating it, and I used my chopsticks and picked one up, and it has the claw on it still, and I just, I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. I put it down. That was, that was a bridge too far for me. I ate chicken feet in China. You're braver than I am. Um, Kim is <laughs> shockingly brave. We're learning interesting stuff about Kim today. You know, Barb, on Thursday, the Department of Justice charged four current and former Louisville Metro Police Department officers with federal civil rights violations related to Breonna Taylor's death. This is a big deal. No officer was previously charged with shooting Ms. Taylor, and only one of the four, Brett Hankinson, faced any state charges in the raid. The new charges include one that shocked me. That is the one that charged them with falsifying the affidavit used to obtain the search warrant of Ms. Taylor's home. They knew the search would be executed by armed officers who did not know about the false information and omissions from the warrant. So, Joyce, let's first start with a deeper dive into the facts alleged and the general background of the case so that our audience knows what we're talking about. So the interesting new piece of information that we've learned with the announcement of these indictments is precisely um, what, what you hone in on, Jill. It's this notion that there was a problem with the search warrant affidavit that got the officers uh, into uh, Breonna Taylor's home in the first place. And this is the notion that the officers who prepared the warrant were at best careless, at worst uh, outright just had a total disregard for the truth in preparing the warrant. They used stale information. That means that it was old and that they knew it was no longer current information. They also knew that the police officers who would be serving that search warrant would be unaware that the information contained in it wasn't true. In other words, those officers would really think that there was a threat, that there were people trafficking and using firearms at the place that they were going in to search. And you can understand how that might really change the officer's approach. If you think that there are folks with guns on the inside and nobody responds, you might have one type of a, re a response in that situation. If you had known that it was a sleeping woman who used to be in a relationship with one of the people you're looking for, your reaction would be entirely different. And so because these officers were, you know, we don't know all of the facts here. We don't know if they were intentionally misled or what happened. This tragedy occurs. And DOJ is very clear, by the way, in announcing these charges and saying that the officers who went in and executed this warrant, that people were put at risk because of the conduct of the officers who obtained the warrant and lied about the facts. And then not happy with what they had done, they engaged in an extensive cover-up to try to keep themselves from being held accountable. So once these facts begin to come out, you can understand why DOJ went after this situation so ferociously. Yeah, I mean, I was really stunned by this uh, information about the police and law enforcement engaging in such 
really terrible conduct. And it led to some pretty serious charges. And Barb, would you talk about some of the charges that um, the laws that they have violated, federal laws? Yeah, so they haven't used, you know, murder charges or the things you might see in a state court case. Uh, the gist of this is federal civil rights crimes as well as obstruction of justice. So the officer who fired the shots uh, through the door and the window without being able to see the target, Brett Hankinson, um, is charged with federal civil rights violations. And that's punishable by up to life in prison um, in a case like this one. Um, there is also a conspiracy to violate civil rights uh, by the other two officers. One's a detective and one is a sergeant for both uh, lying in the initial affidavit and then lying to investigators in the cover-up. And then um, the, the one that's particularly interesting is the information that's been filed against Detective Kelly Goodlatte. Uh, she is a detective who uh, has been charged only with conspiracy. And so the penalties there are limited to five years by statute. And I know Joyce has raised this point. This is a clear sign, a red flag, that she's a cooperator, that she's going to plead guilty. She, uh, by being charged in an information, indicates that she's waived her right to an indictment, and she's being charged with a much lesser, uh, much lesser penalty for her crime than the others. And so it appears to me that she has flipped and that she has cooperated, which may be what gave the investigators um, the opening to learn what really happened here. Um, the other thing I want to point out is why I think this is a tactically brilliant charge by the Justice Department. I think in the state court case where we saw an unsuccessful prosecution of this same officer who fired shots, they were focused on the shooting itself. And when you focus on the shooting itself, it's difficult because the law is really stacked in favor of the police here. What it says is you put yourself in the shoes of a reasonable officer on the scene. And once the table is set, if they are in a position and shots are fired upon them, they're entitled to fire back in self-defense. So it's very difficult to obtain a conviction at that stage. But only if the table is set because they're in a place they're lawfully entitled to be. And so what the Justice Department here did is they went back a step and said they weren't lawfully entitled to be there because the warrant that they got that allowed them to go through the door was itself illegal and based on lies. And so by going back that one step, they say that's where the civil rights violation occurred in the lies to get the warrant. So they weren't lawfully in a place where they could be to fire those shots. So really, I think a very smart and creative way to charge this case. And that's the exact kind of insights that people come to this show to hear. So thank you, Barb. And um, Kim, talk about some of the politics of this and maybe even talk about the fact that there um, was a state charge, which, as we all know, failed. Yes. And of course, that state charge uh, was not for the killing of Breonna Taylor. It was for the reckless endangerment of her neighbors. Um, and that was against Brent uh, Hankinson, who who followed, uh, who faced those, but uh, was not convicted of that, as we discussed in an earlier episode. But I think it's a lot, um, there are a lot of co potential consequences of these charges, in addition to really heavy penalties. I mean, again, as Barb said, these civil rights charges can come with uh, a, a imprisonment of up to life uh, in prison if they are convicted. The obstruction charge is 20 years. That's also massive in addition to the five years for the conspiracy charges. But keep in mind, two of these officers at the time of these charges were made still had their jobs. Two of them had been fired uh, for this. But two of the officers, Sergeant Kyle Meany, uh, as well as Detective Kelly Goodlatte, 
still had their jobs at the LMPD after these federal charges were announced. Um, it was reported that the process to terminate them has begun. Obviously, they're members of a union. There's probably a procedure to go through this. But now they face losing their jobs. It's it's gobsmacking that they've still had their jobs up until now. Um, but they can face termination. Also, uh, the DOJ is engaging in an ongoing investigation into the pattern and practices of the LMPD, which could result in a consent decree, those things that stopped happening in the previous administration by and large but that are meant to get to the root of problems within police departments and bind uh, the people in those departments to make changes to ensure that this stuff doesn't happen again, given the the facts that were laid out by Joyce. I mean, this this department clearly needs some federal intervention and some uh, investigation as to what is going on there. Uh, and of course, it's a matter of potential to have some justice, not only for the Taylor family, but also for all Americans who believe that the extrajudicial killing, disproportionately high extrajudicial killing of Black people is wrong and that it should have consequences. And so that police departments everywhere know that if they engage in the similar kind of practice, that they too can be held accountable under federal law. Thank you. It's This was, at the time it happened, uh, a cause celebre in, in uh, Louisville and led to, you know, a lot of protests because of this unjustifiable uh, killing of a sleeping woman and the endangerment of her neighbors by shooting through a uh, sliding glass door that had blinds down so that the officer shooting could not see. Um, but Barb, um, why isn't this double jeopardy uh, for Hankinson, who was acquitted of state charges for the shooting after a trial? Yeah, this is a great question, Jill, and one that we actually cover in law school and criminal procedure about how double jeopardy mm -hmm. works. And as you know, um, the Constitution says that people shall not be twice put in jeopardy for the same crime. You can't be charged, you know, if you're acquitted once, you can't get another bite at the apple, so to speak, as the prosecutor. Uh, you're free. You get your one shot, the jury acquitted you, and it's over. But the federal and state uh, governments are separate sovereigns. And so they have separate laws, they have separate elements, they're passed by different bodies. And so even though there was an acquittal in the, under the laws of the state of Kentucky, uh, there are federal laws. And so uh, Brett Hankinson has been charged now for federal civil rights violations under uh, for violating acts of Congress. And so because it is a separate sovereign, uh, he has not yet put, been put in jeopardy for those charges, different crime, different elements, different sovereign. And so uh, there is no double jeopardy preclusion from these charges. And the charges include a cover-up after the fact. And it reminded me, being from Chicago, of the terrible lies told by officers after they shot Laquan McDonald in the back 18 times. Um, Kim, can you talk about the cover-up and the facts of that and why it's so terrible? Yeah, it's really awful. I mean, the aspect of it reminds me of Watergate, actually, Jill, uh, because of where some of it took place. But um, the, the indictments allege that uh, Detective um, Janes and Sergeant Meany drafted and approved an affidavit that they knew contained false and misleading statements in order to obtain this search warrant of Taylor's home, as Joyce pointed out. But after the fact, after she was killed, 
it says that Janes worked with another detective to cover up the false affidavit and that they met in a car park, in a, in a garage, like Mark felt, <laughs> you know, under cover of darkness to get their facts together and agree to, to lie to investigators about the basis of the affidavits after the fact, according to these indictments. I mean, that's really remarkable. Talk about police officers and their their, their blue wall of silence sticking together. This is a, a really horrific example of that. And um, I, I really hope, again, between this prosecution, as well as the investigation into what happens more broadly within that police department by the Department of Justice, that things like that uh, we can really get to the bottom of this to prevent things like that from happening again. I hope it'll end the blue wall of silence is what I hope will happen. DOJ filed a lawsuit against the state of Idaho last week, challenging Idaho's new abortion law, which is set to go into effect on August 25 if the courts don't act. So that's the question. What can the courts do? Jill, given all of the bad abortion laws being passed by states with Republican supermajority legislatures, why do you think DOJ decided to focus on Idaho? It's a really horrible law in Idaho is why. It is much more draconian than most. It allows no exceptions. And that makes it very different. So other states that have limited abortions have allowed for an exception for rape or incest um, or the life of the mother. This does not even allow life of the mother. It does allow it in a sort of a funny roundabout way. And that is where the doctor is after he's indicted, he or she is indicted and is being prosecuted for performing an abortion they can then raise the defense that it was to save the life of the pregnant person. That's a little late, and it's a little burdensome, and will certainly deter doctors from performing any life-saving and medically necessary abortions. So I think that's why they picked Idaho, because it really went as far as any law possibly could. Um, You know, there are many cases where it is medically necessary Uh, either because of an incomplete miscarriage or uh, severe preeclampsia, uh, where a patient could become dangerously ill and possibly die. And you don't want the doctor being arrested uh, for having done that and charged, even though it was medically necessary. So I don't think they should become defendants, and I think the Department of Justice agreed with that. And um, facing two to five years while you're... um, you know, being charged is something that would certainly make you think twice. And um, it would say apply to the nurses who help, to the staff who support the procedure. So it's a really terrible law, and I think that's why they picked it. I had a really interesting conversation with a friend who's a doctor, and she focused on something, you know, I was so focused on the horror of being indicted and prosecuted. 
And she said, yeah, you know, those doctors will have to come up with the resources to pay right. for a defense lawyer and defend themselves. And that's a not inconsequential burden to ask someone to assume. That can, you know, literally run into tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars, if you're not careful. Um, and, and like you say, Jill, this is all designed to inject uncertainty, risk, and fear into the process, which means that people won't have access to necessary medical care. Because this statute is really focused on denying women the opportunity to get, you know, not not an elective abortion. And, and look, let me just be clear, I think that's a choice that that people who are pregnant should be able to make for themselves. But here it's withholding care that people need to have their lives saved. And that's what's so, in many ways, so onerous about this. So, Barb, let's talk about the legal theory for a minute, because it, it's so interesting to me. In many ways, when Dobbs came down, I thought it was game over. I know our listeners know this, but quick reminder, what the Supreme Court did in Dobbs was to say there's no federal constitutional right to abortion, so the states can do whatever they want to do. And I thought, well, that means that states that want to completely limit abortion, you know, prohibit it, criminalize it, will be able to do that. But DOJ's fighting back. So what's the legal theory here? Yeah, and don't forget, DOJ, you know, formed this task force uh, to ensure that abortion rights were being upheld to the extent possible under the law, under federal law. And so um, this theory is based on the supremacy clause because there is a federal statute uh, that does uh, protect abortion rights under certain circumstances. There's this statute called the EMTALA, which stands for the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act. Um, and that statute says that emergency rooms on the, for the condition of receiving Medicare funds, uh, they are required to provide medical treatment necessary to stabilize a pregnant patient with an emergency medical condition, not just when your life is at risk, but also when the patient's health is in serious jeopardy or there's serious risk uh, to the impairment of bodily functions or serious dysfunction to any bodily organ or part. And so it, it, that means that this Idaho statute, which only allows uh, a defense for the life of the mother as an affirmative defense does just is, does not offer enough protection. And so because the supremacy clause says that federal law takes priority over state law, when the two conflict, then the federal law takes priority. And so that is uh, what the lawsuit is about, to invalidate that state statute to the extent it conflicts with that federal statute. So um, it's really a, a brilliant strategy. It's the same one, you may recall, they filed in Texas uh, when Texas had passed that law, you know, pre-Dobbs, pre um, that said that a uh, uh, private party could sue an abortion provider to get uh, civil damages. And the Justice Department filed a lawsuit there. That case is still working its way through the courts uh, under this same supremacy clause theory. Of course, that's when Roe is still the law of the land. So that may have changed. But it's nice to see them and heartening to see them pivot and utilize this statute to protect abortion rights in the case of the health of a pregnant person, which I want to say I think is really important. I think that so often people say, well, life of the mother, there you go, there's an exception. 
I, you know, I have friends in the medical profession who tell me that, you know, the devil is in the details. It's very difficult to say that this person will die unless they get an abortion, but it's much more likely they can say there is a very serious health risk if this person is not permitted to terminate their pregnancy. And so this gives them more leeway for a doctor to make a good medical decision without worrying about, eh, I might be wrong. I'm not sure they're really going to die because you don't want to have that chilling effect that makes it uh, virtually impossible for a doctor to feel confident that they can make this decision. And that's a really important point because what often happens in these health of the mother situations is, especially if you're dealing with something like an ectopic pregnancy or preeclampsia or something like that, the risk, if you do not give important um, stabilizing treatment, is the woman's fertility often, even mm-hmm. if her life is not in danger, her ability to have mm-hmm. any more children, uh, which could be really devastating. So if folks are really pro-life, it would be in their interest to ensure <laughs> that women get this kind of care and not have to wait for a doctor to be able to prove that she is on death's door before he can uh, you know, adhere to his own uh, Hippocratic Oath. I think that's such an important point because statistically, one of the most common presentations for this is a woman who ruptures at 15 or 16 weeks. There is no viability for the fetus, and it may be a pregnancy that the woman really desperately wants to carry to term. She's faced with a horrible choice because medically, the pregnancy has to be terminated, to avoid the risk of sepsis or of hemorrhage that will claim her life. Um, And so now laws like this further burden women who are already facing severe trauma and miscarriage. And it's just such a nasty, mean piece of legislation. Barb pointed out that this is a supremacy clause issue where DOJ has crafted this very clever strategy of saying, oh, no, the state law conflicts with federal law. Federal law trumps state law, and so Idaho's law needs to be enjoined and prevented from going into effect. And Kim, I know you know because we've discussed it before. Uh, I, too, am a huge fan of supremacy clause arguments. It's the argument that we made in Alabama to convince the courts that they should um, do away with significant parts of Alabama's anti-immigrant law. Mm. Supremacy clause has always been sort of vital. Um, I don't think that there's been a big test of it with this new uber-conservative Supreme Court. Maybe it's another one of those precedents that falls by the wayside. But Mm -hmm. here it seems to me like DOJ is using it in a new context with EMTALA. Have they ever used this theory before under EMTALA itself and succeeded? Yeah, so all of this is very novel. And I'm with you, Joyce. Uh, Constitutional supremacy is my favorite kind of supremacy. Um, I, that's a that's a good one. We talk a lot about a, a lot of bad supremacies, but that's a good one. Um, and and this idea of uh, constitutional supremacy is something that the Supreme Court has embraced in the past, as recently as with uh, the the case striking down uh, gun laws as as violative of the Constitution, saying that states can't act where there is already 
the federal authorities speaking clearly. Um, but when it comes to Imtala and specifically in fighting abortion bans, no, we don't have clear precedent for that. But I do, for all the reasons that we've already talked about, think that this is a pretty strong case when you have a clear, it's not a constitutional law, but it's a clear federal statute that requires, doesn't give the option to, it requires doctors who receive this federal funding to provide, quote, stabilizing treatment. And I, I don't know how you can argue in any way that uh, protecting a woman's health, protecting a woman who faces the possibility uh, that her life or health could be threatened in an emergency situation wouldn't fall under that. And it's important to remember, we're talking about these challenges. This will not strike down this law and it won't make abortion available to everyone. It will only be in these most serious uh, medical emergency situations. So this case will be heard in Idaho by uh, federal judge Lynn Windmill, who is a Clinton appointee. And it's very likely that regardless of the outcome of that case, it will immediately be challenged. And I think that it will quickly make its way up what we've talked about before, the shadow docket in the course of one of the parties seeking an injunction uh, will be challenged on the emergency docket up to the U.S. Supreme Court, which will likely at least in the first instance, in that procedural stance, make a ruling as to whether this law can be stopped from going into effect and then ultimately may go on a full merits hearing uh, before the Supreme Court to decide whether Imtala really does reign supreme here. Hey, Kim, you're way more optimistic than I am. A year ago, I would have agreed with you. It's a clear-cut supremacy clause argument. But I have become so cynical about this court, and I really hope mm. that, that you're right. Um, but I will confess, and I wonder what y'all think. Maybe I'm just way too cynical at this point. I, I just fear that this court has results-oriented jurisprudence when it comes to abortion, and they will do whatever it takes to prevent um, a law that makes life you know, more hospitable for women to go into effect. I have sort of flirted with the notion, though, that in the face of all of the clapback on this and what's happened in Kansas this week with the vote there to try to protect some species of abortion rights, maybe the court will decide that this is an out for them. And we're used to thinking of the court not as a political actor, as an entity that only looks at the law and decides legal issues, but they feel a little bit like the dog that's finally caught the car only to learn that the car is loaded with explosives. And I wonder if maybe they might not be willing to take a little bit of an out here. What do y'all think? You know, I don't know about the court. I'm sure they tell themselves whatever they need to to rationalize their own, you know, viewpoints on their abortion decisions. But I do want to mention what you just mentioned, Joyce, the vote in Kansas this week, which I think is so encouraging. I mean, by an overwhelming margin, voters in Kansas um, voted to... Uh, keep their right to constitutional right to an abortion. And I, I think, you know, some uh, uh, politicians there thought that they were going to ride this momentum and uh, get the people of Kansas to change their constitution to say that the state legislature may ban abortion. And the voters in a resounding way said no in Kansas. And so if that's the way voters feel in Kansas, it gives me hope for some other places.
The trial of prolific disinformation peddler Alex Jones in a defamation case bought by Sandy Hook families certainly had quite the dramatic ending this week. It wasn't just the $4 million compensatory jury award for falsely calling the horrific school shooting a hoax. It was the bombshell revelation during Jones's testimony that his attorney accidentally sent all of Jones' text messages, including those proving that he knew Sandy Hook was not a hoax to opposing counsel. Oh, boy. Ouch. So before we dive, it's, I mean, you, could, you can't make this stuff up. So before <laughs> we dive into the implications of all that, let's do a little bit of explaining. Barb, this trial wasn't uh, meant to prove that Jones committed defamation. Why not? Uh, what did the jury decide? And how did this gobsmacking revelation impact their ruling? Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. Alex Jones um, was held in default in terms of the liability phase. He just didn't show up. You know, I think when you are a public figure like an Alex Jones, you're not only thinking about your legal exposure, you're thinking about your reputational exposure. And, you know, he makes a living off of this whole idea of, you know, everything's a conspiracy theory and he's untouchable and, you know, he's going to mock everybody and everything on his podcast and his InfoWars website. So he just didn't show up. And so he defaulted and the judge entered a judgment against him, finding that he was liable for um, defaming the Sandy Hook families, you know, his his claims were essentially that the Sandy Hook shooting was one, either a hoax, it didn't happen, these were actors playing these roles, or that it was a false flag operation uh, put on by the government um, just so that they could earn enough political capital to take away your guns. Just ridiculous claims that caused you know extreme anguish for these poor parents who had already lost their children. So this phase was really just about damages. How much is this going to cost him? And so far we've had a compensatory phase, you know, which is sort of the out-of-pocket medical expenses uh, and those sort of pain and suffering, those sorts of things. And the jury awarded $4 million. And as of our recording, um, they were still out on the question of punitive damages, which is extra damages, not to compensate people for their loss, but uh, to punish, to say this was so egregiously bad that in addition to compensating people for their loss, we're going to punish you with extra money um, to, to deter you and others from ever engaging in this again. And I love one of the lines the lawyer for the Sandy Hook family uh, gave during his opening statement in this um, damages phase. He said, in America, speech is free, but lies will cost you. Yeah, no, that was a really, really great statement. So, Jill, let's talk about Alex Jones's attorney for a minute, F. and Dino Reynal. Not only did he send these text messages to the Sandy Hook family's lawyer, but the, he then asked the judge to have those text messages be deleted and ask for a mistrial in the case because he accidentally <laughs> sent these text messages to opposing counsel. Explain the judge's reaction. And what's your reaction to this guy? I mean, I, I just couldn't help but think, is he for real? And And might he even face disciplinary action for all this? It's such a good question. And I'm inclined to agree with you on all of your opinions here. Um, Reynal is basically saying, incompetent counsel, you have to have a mistrial. <laughs> I mean, he's making his own incompetent counsel argument. This is usually something that another lawyer will make on appeal. Um, so that's kind of interesting. And I think in this case, you have a lot of questions. First of all, I would ask whether it was actually accidental that he did this. 
Mm. It seems Ooh. to me that there's, yeah, Good I point. mean, first of all, everybody is saying, uh, including the, the lawyers who got it by, mis- by, by they're saying he messed up and he gave it to us by mistake. I'm not sure that he messed up and gave it by mistake. Most of that was something that was subject to proper discovery and should have been turned over. He had a clear obligation to turn it over. And maybe he failed to do it. And maybe he's trying to make up for that now by having sort of like, well, I'll just put it in there and they probably won't even notice. But then I have proof that I actually turned it over. So I'm not guilty of violating my ethical rules and the rules of procedure for discovery. So Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I'm willing to say that it was totally that he messed up and that it was accidental. and they're blaming the paralegal, if, if by that the was way. His... They're blaming a paralegal. Isn't that the classic? Come on, lawyers. Oh, don't never God. blame the students. I, don't I, ever blame the support staff. It was my staff. staff. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yeah. I, I now will have an excuse to wear a beautiful goat pin that I got, which is supposed to be for a scapegoat. So maybe now I have a reason to wear my goat pin. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really bad. I think he did have an obligation to disclose and that... Um, the thing about ineffective uh, assistance of counsel is that only applies in a criminal case. And this is, of course, a defamation case, not a criminal case. So it wouldn't even really apply. Um, but it is sort of funny that he did this. But that's not all he's done. He also flipped off the other lawyer, physically using his middle finger in the courtroom, which was recorded, and you can see it on YouTube or on Twitter. Um, so there are some real serious questions about Renault's um, appropriateness as an attorney. And I do think that there are some things here that um, may lead to his having some problems with the Bar Association. Um, he said damages should be a dollar for each of the uh, charges, $8 total, which is you know, it's just ridiculous. That's not even a sensible argument to make. No, no jury is going to be persuaded by that, I would say. Um, so I think it's going to be really interesting. On the other hand, he has a really interesting background. He's a former federal prosecutor. Uh, he was appointed by Holder, uh, who we all think is good. Um, Wait, can and, I just say something yeah. about that, Jill? And, and I'm interested in what Barb thinks, too. He touts that, that he was appointed as an assistant United States attorney by Eric Holder. He leads with that on LinkedIn. And, you know, I promise you, <laughs> Eric Holder had nothing to do with the decision. I, I agree with you on that. Yeah. He served the in the organized crime. He probably he, signed he, his certificate. And he served. Yeah. He wasn't the U.S. attorney. He was in yeah, the organized assistant, crime assistant section. U.S. Attorney. So yeah. yeah. So I, I I mean it 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 happened that he happened to be applying while Holder was attorney general, but I'm sure he wasn't appointed by Holder. Uh, he signed although, a certificate in the same way the president of your university signs your diploma. Exactly. <laughs> That's yeah. exactly. Yeah. He is also an adjunct professor of law. For you professors, I have not heard of the University of Houston Law Center, but it makes me suspicious if he is a professor there. Sorry. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and he did have, he was in private practice at a good firm before. His, now he's got his own firm. But I think that his handling of this case makes me suspicious of his qualifications to continue practicing. Ooh, not touting Eric Holder's name on your LinkedIn account. All right, now. I wonder if that's how Alex <laughs> Maybe Eric Holder will bring the next defamation lawsuit, but it'll be against Renal. 
So, Joyce, this isn't over yet. Raynell uh, said the January 6th committee is interested in these texts as well. What might they be looking for? Who might it implicate? And are there any intimate details that can be revealed? <laughs> um, so, first off, I will be going to the grocery store as soon as we finish taping the podcast so that I can stock up on popcorn because we are going to need it for this one. Um, I think it's not just the January 6th committee. There's also some suggestion. One of the lawyers, the the key lawyer for the parents, had indicated that that federal law enforcement had also shown some interest. We don't know if that means that there's a grand jury subpoena yet. But the possibilities for who Alex Jones could implicate are potentially limitless, right? For one thing— He has a relationship with Roger Stone. And, you know, I have always thought that one of the keys to assessing who's the most culpable for January 6th is finding out what was going on in those war rooms at the Willard Hotel leading up to January 6th. Roger Stone plays a big role there. Alex Jones might have text messages that help to shed light on that. I think the other possibility that we have to contemplate, we don't know what's in these text messages. It could be that they're not relevant, that there's nothing interesting. It could even be, it wouldn't be a shocker, right, if his text messages for January 6th were missing at this point. (laughs) But there is a lot of potential here, not just the potential to involve Stone, but sometimes you just land on a treasure trove and maybe you get a smoking gun Or maybe you get leads on other witnesses that you need to follow up on. But Jones has at various times said that the White House and the Secret Service asked him to lead protesters to the Capitol. I'd be very interested to see if his phone can shed any light on that. He himself made the claim that he obtained the funding from one of the heiresses to the public's fortune that provided about 80% of the funding for the rally on the Ellipse. That could prove interesting too, right? What did they talk about? What did they say was happening? I don't want to overpaint this because Jones on January 6th at various times encouraged people to be peaceful. We literally don't know what's there, but sort of by the grace of God here, it sounds like we're about to find out. And then the last thing that I'll say, Kim, is that you um, asked about the intimate nature of these messages. There has been some news reporting that there are intimate messages between Stone and Jones. And I'm just going to say that at this moment, I'm going to stick my fingers in my ear and shut my (laughs) eyes and try to not contemplate that unless and until we have to. Wait, wait, wait. What do you mean intimate? Wait, wait, wait. wait. What do you mean intimate? Well, that's the that's the point now, of that. Because it's like every reporter that we know. But what that, is intimate? Yeah, I don't. Mean I don't think. Here? I don't think intimate like romantic. I think intimate like they were talking on January fifth about plans for January sixth, right? Barb, would anything about Alex Jones and Roger Stone shock you at this point? Well, I mean, Stone I, yeah, has I don't a know. tattoo I don't wanna, of Nixon you, you, on his back. Well, that's true. He does have the tattoo of Nixon. Let's yeah. not forget that. <laughs> oh so God. let's just not go there unless we have right. to. Yeah, I think in terms of why it's legally interesting, though, is that Alex Jones, when he testified before the January 6th committee, um, invoked his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination like a hundred times. But if you can get what's on his phone, and if he's there on January 5th in the Willard Hotel, you know, war room, and he's leading, uh, you know, the protests on January 6th, I think there's very good 
uh, likelihood, it, you know, it's certainly worth looking at, but a high possibility that you've got some very good and incriminating things on his text messages. You know, the Fifth Amendment is a testimonial right. It applies to your testimony against yourself and not to what you say in text messages. Mm-hmm. So this, mm-hmm. this could be a big deal. Yeah. I just want to ask really quickly, we know in the course of this litigation, Alex Jones filed for bankruptcy. Do do you think that the Sandy Hook families see any of this money, either the compensatory or whatever punitive damages are awarded? Anybody? Bankruptcy fraud is one of my favorite crimes. Ooh, that's a great answer because that's what I was going to say in a much longer way. I'll take Joyce's answer. For four hundred. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just love no, bankruptcy no, I, fraud. Yeah, no, that's exactly what I think is going to happen. Is they will see the money because his bankruptcy will be fraudulent, and it will not succeed. And the money that has been identified will be available for paying these judgments. Well, there is reporting that he previously filed for bankruptcy, and a judge dismissed it as fraudulent. And now he um, was on his podcast bragging about how he was going to file for bankruptcy as a way of shielding his funds from uh, recovery in this case. And so I think those statements alone are going to make it a very uphill battle for him in his bankruptcy quest. Couldn't happen to a nicer, more deserving guy. Bless his heart. Well, now we reach the part in our show that I think we all enjoy the most, which is answering our listener questions. We have lively debates even deciding which questions we're going to answer, I'll have you know. It's probably part part of the fun. But if you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week where we'll answer as many of your questions as we can. Our first question comes to us from Logan from Sea Ranch, California. And Logan asks, will Brittany Griner be required to serve all nine years in prison for possessing less than one gram of cannabis oil? Boy, I, uh, did you guys see this this week? Mm. I mean, to me, this strikes me as, uh, you know, the equivalent of using an AK-47 to, to swat a fly. Uh, Kim, what was your reaction to, to the sentence of Brittany Griner? And do you think she'll have to serve all of it? Yeah, my reaction was the same as yours, Barb. And it was interesting because this week someone uh, asked me, um, you know, made the point like, look, when 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 people go to a foreign country and they know what the laws are and the laws in Russia are much stricter than in the United States, isn't it incumbent upon the person to know those laws and follow them and, and face consequences if they don't? And generally speaking, I think that that is true. But in I what I told them is that context matters. A considerable amount. And the context here begins uh, in part with the fact that we are in an ongoing uh, war supporting Ukraine against Russia. And this was certainly a political uh, convenient thing to hold over the United States at this point. Um, and so I do believe that politics are playing a major role in this and that will she serve her nine years or not will depend not on the legal system, but on the in the State Department, on diplomacy uh, in negotiating with Russia to try to to do what will likely be some sort of prisoner exchange in order to procure her freedom mm-hmm. in a way that is just certainly we in the United States do not see uh 
that kind of sentence for for having a cannabis cartridge with just some remnants of oil in it uh, under any under any conception of human rights. I also think that there are a lot of other things at play here, including here in the U.S., uh, pay equity issues, because if this were LeBron James, this would have never happened because he wouldn't have to go play in Russia in the offseason just to have a, a basketball career the way that women basketball players here do. So I think that this is complex. I hope that the... Uh, State Department works earnestly to get her back home. I hope that she is being taken care of. I, I worry about how she will be treated, and I just hope this is revi- uh, resolved quickly. Yeah, this issue of pay equity, I think, is so interesting, and we've discussed it before. I'd love to discuss it another time as well. You know, she is one of the top players in the WNBA. Uh, you know, she is the female equivalent of a LeBron James or a Kevin Durant, you know, somebody at the top of the game, Steph Curry. She's she's in that category in the WNBA, and yet she has to moonlight by traveling to Russia in the offseason uh, to make ends meet. You know, while she can, it's a short career. And so uh, to earn as much uh, as, as she she needs to, she she travels overseas. And so I think this idea of pay equity is uh, is a really interesting one as well. I was really impressed with, just before we get off that, if you don't mind, I was so impressed. I watched her in court, so impressed by her dignity um, and the way she simply refused to let them change who she was. I mean, obviously, your heart goes out to her and her wife and her family, but I ultimately was like had this surprising moment where I was so proud of the way she conducted herself. I hope we can bring her home soon. Our next question comes to us uh, from Robin from Albuquerque. And Robin asks, will Pat Cipollone and Patrick Philbin, former White House counsel, be able to use executive privilege or attorney-client privilege to block the DOJ grand jury subpoenas that have been served against them? What do you think about that one, uh, Joyce? Let me ask you. By the way, did you see the um, appearance that Jill had on W uh, on, on MSNBC, where they were closed captioning her answer, and when she answered <laughs> Pat Cipollone and and Philbin, it came out as passive polonium Philbin. Jill, what's you know, up with there that? have been some great misspellings of, of Cipollone's name, but Jill, that takes the cake. Passive polonium. <laughs> I loved it. It's so adorable. We need to include a, a screenshot of that in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I, I think that that's the only good news here for Pat Cipollone was that Jill managed to um, mash his name for the Chiron. Executive privilege is not going to fly here. Although the Supreme Court may not have ruled with precision right in this little teeny tiny niche of executive privilege, they have ruled in other areas. There's law in the D.C. Court of Appeals. And frankly, all this is at this point is a delay option. There's been news that the former president's lawyers are talking with folks at DOJ. Yes, they will squabble. They will probably, knowing Trump, file um, some sort of a legal action, a motion to quash. If there is any lawyer who's still willing to do work for Donald Trump, but this is just a delay tactic at best, and I suspect DOJ is prepared to run rings around the Trump's folks and get this issue decided as quickly as possible so that they can get the testimony. 
Cipollone's testimony is one of the keys here because you'll recall he's asserting executive privilege to avoid testifying about his direct interactions with the former president, the kind of conversations that will reveal whether or not Trump had the necessary state of mind to be held criminally responsible for the conduct on January 6th and in pursuit of the big lie. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Joyce. I think they're getting this. Um, it, they will assert executive privilege and attorney-client privilege, but they're going to lose. The best piece I saw on this was written by Neil Eggleston. Remember him? He was the White House counsel during the yeah, Obama administration. Yeah, it's a great piece. Yeah, it, let, let's put that in our uh, show notes. He wrote it for Just Security, and he kind of goes through each of the potential arguments and why they fail. And I, I was completely persuaded that uh, in the end, they're going to have to tell. And, and in a way that, you know, I, before the January 6th committee, they kind of negotiated half a loaf, I think, just to be able to get it in a timely way without spending too much time litigating. But I think if this gets litigated, um, DOJ is going to get all, all of this information. And I think they're going to want that. Barb, let me point out that there is a big difference between the January 6th committee mm-hmm. and the grand jury. And that goes back to the time of Watergate and U.S. v. Nixon, where the court said that the need of a grand jury in a criminal investigation far outweighs the privilege possibilities. And that was a privilege that was being claimed by the sitting president, not by a former president. And we, the prosecutors, got the tapes. The uh, investigation by the Senate did not prevail in that case. They got it as a result of our getting it not because they got it. So I think that the argument for the grand jury is so strong that there is not any chance. But that's why the January 6th committee negotiated rather than insisting on full disclosure. All right, very good. And Jill, I'm going to direct our third question at you as our local historian. It comes from Lee. And Lee asks, could you give a quick summary of the ERA's history and where it stands now? What would change if it is a part of the Constitution, and how can we, as citizens, help? I am so glad that someone asked this question because I've been longing to talk about this. It is a new passion. Of, I shouldn't say a new passion. It is a renewed passion of mine. It's something I have been working for since 1976, and the need for the ERA is much more dramatically obvious now after Dobbs than it has ever been. And even as we're talking about uh, uh, Griner and the pay equity issues, these are reasons why we need the Equal Rights Amendment. 38 states have ratified it. That is all it takes. So what's the argument against it and what would it take? Let me just say that once 38 states ratify, all it takes is an order from the President of the United States our POTUS, Mr. Biden, all he has to do is tell the archives to publish it and announce that it is now the 28th Amendment to the Constitution, and that's it. It is then the 28th Amendment. Um, What are the arguments against it? One is that some states have tried to withdraw their ratification. That is completely and totally not legally possible. The, The courts have made that clear. So, Any withdrawals don't count. The thing that is in the way is the argument about the fact that there was a time limit imposed and that unless it was ratified by 38 states within that time limit, it wouldn't work. The argument against that is that it wasn't part of the amendment. So when states voted, 
they voted on only the amendment, not on what Congress said. And so there is a very strong argument that that doesn't apply and that the time limit isn't valid and that therefore the 38th um, um, ratification, which came after the deadline had expired, doesn't matter. It still counts. There is an Office of Legal Counsel opinion that says to the contrary that it is a valid thing and that we'd have to start all over again to ratify. I'm hoping that the Department of Justice will take as bold a move on behalf of all women by passing the Equal Rights Amendment as they did in taking on Idaho and that we can end this and that President Biden will say to the National Archives that it is the 28th Amendment and it should be published. And to answer your question, Lee, about how do we help, at this point, I think that writing to President Biden or to your senators and your representatives to say that you think ERA is important and that it must become part of the Constitution and that you accept that it is a valid 28th Amendment might help persuade him to do it. So that's what you can do for now and support all the lawyers and legal organizations that are working to make this happen. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Joyce Vance, Jill Weinbanks, Kimberly Atkins Store, and me, Barb McQuaid. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag Sisters in Law. Go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our pale blue tea, hoodie, and other goodies. And please support this week's sponsors, Framebridge, HelloFresh, Grove, and Thrive Cosmetics. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they really help make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag SistersInLaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps others to find the show. See you next week with another episode, hashtag Sisters in Law. You know, we have a huge Ukrainian community here. I mean, I've had it in Ukraine when, when I worked in Ukraine, but the Chicago Ukrainian I'm, wait, village hold on. has I'm so sorry. many you good were in Ukraine? You were, That's where my family yes. is from. Where in Ukraine did you work? In Kiev. Were you a spy, no Jill? No, I, this time I was actually in business. This was when I was with Motorola. <laughs> And it was before the revolution, so that it was so corrupt. It was, we actually ended up, after spending a lot of money, we withdrew because, I mean, I, I won't go through all the details, but believe me, I, I had worked in Russia, and I thought Russia was horrible. Compared to Ukraine, Russia was nothing. I mean, You also amazing. worked in Russia? What did yeah. you do in Russia? Same thing. I was creating cellular operating companies, and Putin was actually helpful to me when I was in Russia. Wait, so wait, wait. I actually how did, have, how did Putin help you? Are there he, photos? He, he was. Um, was he with the KGB at the I time? Have, no, he was minister of finance in Moscow at the time. Um, did he keep his and shirt on? He, yes, he kept all his clothes on. <laughs> and he was actually, I mean, he was very nice. Our our consultants who, my translators Holy were good friends of God. him. Very nice. He was so, very nice. He was. I mean, he, he's a monster now, but he he wasn't then. There is nothing you haven't done and no one you haven't met. You didn't met share any secrets with him, did you, Jill? I, I didn't have any. Well, <laughs> actually, the Motorola deal went through. I was chairman of St. Petersburg Telecom. That was what we the name of the, we set up a company in St. Uh -uh. Petersburg. 
And the mayor of St. Petersburg, actually the deputy mayor of St. Petersburg was on our board and was assassinated while he was on oh our board. Oh my God. Oh my God. I'm telling you, one so, day what? we are going to yeah. find out that all this time yeah. Jill was a spy, her, her, her work in Ukraine and <laughs> Russia. 